I'm Stephen John Drew from Better Podcasting, a podcast about podcasting, part of the Gunna Geek Network. Just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find fantastic geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. You are listening to the Starling Tribune, a podcast dedicated to the Arrow TV show. I am the Green Arrow. The Green Arrow has entered through the front door. This podcast is not produced or maintained by The CW, Warner Brothers Television, CTV, or DC Comics. All characters, situations, and stories are the properties of Time Warner. I am the Oracle, and this is your Tribune. Welcome back to Earth 2's last newspaper, the Starling Tribune. Now broadcasting from our Earth 1 shelter. I am the chief editor, well, really the only editor left. My name is SP. And my other reporter for this special episode number 258 of the Starling Tribune is Chris. Holy crimson skies of death. I was, I, I don't know about you, Chris, but I watched the 66 series. It was in reruns by the time I got to it, but I watched it on black and white TV, you know, the tube TV back in nice. the 70s. And I was just brought back to that. I was surprised that they didn't put one of those cartoon you know bams or or whatever up there just to say whoa or an explanation point like they did in the 66 series when he said that that would have been cool i do think that burt war got the best line in episode one of the crossover and it did make me a little sad though because i imagine had adam west not passed away in the past couple years he would have been all about appearing in this momentary little flashed earth 66 with burt ward they would have appeared they would have appeared together and it would have been awesome yep and it would have been awesome. R.I.P. Adam West for really starting this whole thing off because the 66 Batman pretty much was the origins of DC Comics on TV. Michelle is not with us tonight. It is not because she didn't want to be here. She actually wanted to be here. She is feeling under the weather and everything's fine. She's just normal sickness and everything, but she wanted to be here. We do have some notes for her to speak about later. And if you want to send her a note on Twitter, at Michelle Ely, tell her you wish her to get better soon. I'm sure she would appreciate it. She actually has a quote in here that she selected, which I am going to talk about because we got to talk about this moment. And it is, this one speaks to rabbits. And if you don't know what we're talking about there, that is Brainy talking about Batwoman and her entrance into the D.E.O. This podcast is recorded Thursday, December 12th, 2019, live on www.geeks.live. That's right. And this evening we'll be discussing Crisis Episode 1, as well as news, interviews, articles, and announcements that have dropped recently that will impact the future episodes of Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow, and the rest of the universe. So a friendly reminder, if you're watching this live or at a later date, this is part one of Crisis we are talking about. There will be no spoilers for parts two and three. They have aired already. We have our thoughts about parts two and three, a lot of them based off of what we've seen in part one, but we will refrain from bringing up any information from parts two and three so that if you are just watching one episode at a time, you can enjoy the podcast one episode at a time as well. So just keep that in mind as we go through here. And a friendly reminder, well, friendly statement for you all. If you're new to the show, thank you for searching us out on the internet and joining us this week. After the show, you can go check out all of our content over at GunnaGeek.com. You'll find geeky videos, podcasts, articles, and even more. 
Thanks, Chris. We're just going to jump right into the episode like we have been talking about it so far. Anyway, the episode was Crisis on Infinite Earths Part 1. It was Supergirl Season 5, Episode 9. It aired on Sunday night, December 8th, 2019. It was directed by Jesse Warren, who has 13 directing credits with Supergirl, 8 episodes of Arrow, four episodes of The Flash, and eight of Spartacus, a very good personality to bring in for beginning the crisis. This episode was written by Robert L. Rovner, which was story by, has 17 episodes of Supergirl, which includes seven story, five teleplay, and five writing credits. The story was also by Mark Guggenheim, who is the big daddy rabbit of this whole Arrowverse, He has three episodes story by of Supergirl, which is Crisis on Earth X Part 1, Elsewords Part 3, and Crisis Part 1, all crossover episodes. And the teleplay was by Derek Simon, who has 23 executive story editor credits of Supergirl, 22 story editor credits of Supergirl, 12 writing credits of Supergirl, 7 staff writing credits of Supergirl, 5 teleplay credits of Supergirl, and two story by in Supergirl. The teleplay was a team, and it was also by Jay Thurber, who has two episodes of Supergirl written by, nine episodes of Zoo, and two episodes of Starcross. By the way, Jay is also listed as a producer of Supergirl. Lots of names this week. It's Crisis. Lots of people involved. He kind of had to bring in a lot of names because there's just so many characters which are not normally part of Supergirl that needs to be brought in. We'll talk about that in a little bit. One name I wish we had seen there, James Bamford. Bam Bam, from either the stunt coordinator or the directing credit. Right. I mean, let's be honest. He's one of our favorite directors on Arrow. There's something that happens in this episode that I think would be greatly benefited by the Arrow touch. Let's put it that way, and we'll get to it later on. We will indeed. This was part one of three of the crossover episodes. So we have three crossover episodes with ratings that we'll talk about. Plus Black Lightning had a quasi crossover episode and it was really focused on the crossover without being crossover. It was more of how the Black Lightning Earth was dealing with the antimatter coming in. And it was interesting the way they played it off. So if you're watching Black Lightning, by the way, and you didn't have any clue of the other shows that are on the CW, you would have been good on where this was going. It seemed to come out of nowhere, but at least they led into it. At least it wasn't, bam, hit you in the face. We're doing a crossover where you never heard of any of these characters before. Anyway, let's go over the ratings. Supergirl on the 8th of December aired the Crisis on Infinite Earths Part 1, the episode we're talking about tonight, to a live rating of 1.67. Batwoman on the next night, the 9th of December, aired the ninth episode of their first season, Crisis on Infinite Earths Part 2, to a live rating of 1.71. It was followed by that Black Lightning episode I was talking about. It was the ninth episode of the third season, titled The Book of Resistance, Chapter 4, Earth Crisis, to a live rating of 0.9, which is actually pretty good for Black Lightning this season, and it does have Earth Crisis in the title. So quasi-crossover episode. It wasn't like the Legends of Tomorrow non-crossover episode last year. This was definitely focused on the crossover. 
and, and as well as the story of Black Lightning. And Flash aired the ninth episode of the sixth season, Crisis on Infinite Earths Part 3, on the 10th of December to a live rating of 1.71. Arrow did not air this week, and neither did Legends of Tomorrow. Pretty healthy ratings, considering where the ratings are this year with the CW shows, Chris. I think so. Uh, the Supergirl rating, or technically Crisis Part 1, because while it is technically a Supergirl show, it's effectively Crisis Part 1, was slightly less than Elseworlds was last year. But I figure when you factor in the app and factor in DVR plus three ratings and stuff like that, these are all probably relatively the same rating wise, because I doubt someone's going to watch only part two of Crisis. Someone's going to be like, I love Batwoman. I don't give a crap about the rest. Someone's going to watch the Batwoman episode. That's, that's not going to happen. If you like one of these shows, you're probably going to be watching everything that makes up Crisis. And I'm kind of pleasantly surprised to see the bump in Black Lightning this week, I guess, because of the Crisis-ish connection because what was it last week like a 0.67 i think we said or a 0.7 something like that i was worried that it would get below 0.5 because it didn't have anything to do with crisis i was glad also that they announced that there was a quasi tie-in to crisis as well because otherwise i might have foregone watching it this week glad i saw it well cynical chris says they did that for the exact reason we're seeing on paper right now nice little ratings jump Batwoman aired before Black Lightning, and that was a little weird when it comes down to when the character was brought into it, but you got to kind of roll with it in this case. And as I mentioned before, these episodes will never be together again. Once they leave the CW app, the active CW app, and they go into their long-term storage, the only way you're going to get them together is if you buy the individual episodes yourself and that you're able to go back and forth because there won't be a carve-out on Netflix for them. There won't be a carve-out anywhere else. These episodes won't be sold together. They will be sold within the confines of their seasons for their series. So just just a little heads up. I don't think you'll see a box set of this. At At least as far as we know so far. True enough, they might surprise me. I mean, because remember, a lot of this stuff's going to go to the new HBO streaming service once the Netflix deal runs out, which I think is at the end of 2020. Or it might be that I'd have to go look. But it's coming up soon, and once they put it on HBO, whatever the hell they're calling that service, they very well could do something similar to what we've seen on the CW app, which is a call-out for Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is, yeah, you can go here and just watch Crisis, or you can go watch the individual episodes as part of the season. So we often talk about the episode in terms of the theme of the episode. The theme of the episode, we relate to the title of the episode. The title for this episode, of course, is Crisis on Infinite Earths Part 1. It signifies that there's going to be more than one part. And I just want to foot stomp this. We've talked about this before, Chris, that this is the most ambitious crossover in the history of TV. This is not just the four shows that we saw this week. This is also including two other shows. So six shows have come together. Now, they're all spurred out of Arrow, but six shows have come together in order to pull this crossover together unprecedented in the history of television. Yes, what we're seeing here is something I don't think you'll see very often because you don't often have five or six shows set in the same universe that you can cross over. Like we saw the Stargates crossover. You'd have Atlantis do a crossover with Stargate SG-1, but it was generally only a couple characters to step over, not an overarching plot that went between them. With what we have here with the DC shows, we have an overarching universe with six different shows that take place at the same time, and we've gotten tastes of how they could do a crossover that involves a lot of them and this is the big daddy and i remember us talking last year when they announced after elseworlds that it was gonna be crisis and infinite earths being like holy cow 
how are they going to pull this off? And this is the first step towards pulling it off this week. One of our fears with this crossover was when we started getting a list of all the actors that were involved and all the cameo, what we now know are cameos that were involved. We were worried about how this was going to play. Like you get three seconds of this character on a scene and then you'd never see the character again. So you're wondering how the character actually fit into crisis. I think they did a really good job at placing the cameos, what they meant and what they really meant to tie in all of the historic screen DC comic universe into this crisis. None of the current stuff. So you didn't see the Suicide Squad or Batman or Justice League, Batman versus Superman or anything like that. Wonder Woman that's currently airing right now in theaters. But everything in the past was fair game. Put it this way. If it was a cameo, don't expect them to have played a major part in Crisis, which is one of the fan theories that have been out there. So when these cameos came out was, oh, this character from this TV show I loved is going to be in there. They're going to play a huge part. Doesn't seem like it in part one of what we've seen of Crisis. Burt Ward had one line. Uh, Robert Wool had one line. Now it was awesome to have those tie-ins there, but they were not significant to the grand scheme of things. A lot of these cameos are a moment where you go, oh, I can't believe they just referenced that. That's awesome. One of the things that happened, by the way, is the Chirons were on the screen saying which Earth you were on, which I think was absolutely necessary because you didn't know where you were. So it gave the Earth number and the city or where you were in the Earth, which I think was great. And in Argo, they said Argo on there. There's no real city on there to speak of. But let's go line by line on all of the cameos that we know and the Earth numbers and what the Earth numbers meant. You want to take the first one, Chris? Short first Earth, we get Earth 89. So this is from the Michael Keaton Batman, which came out in 1989. Who we get there is the reporter Alexander Knox that we were introduced to in the movie played by Robert Wool. He's reading a newspaper and makes a reference to, hope you've got this one covered, big guy or something like that. And you see the bat signal over his shoulder. And you get kind of that darker camera work, that neo-Gothic Tim Burton-inspired Gotham, it sort of looks like, or really they just kind of darkened the uh, effects on there just to make it seem grim, dark, and gritty. Well, not gritty, but Gothic, I guess, like we saw in the Burton films. I think it worked out pretty well. We also got a cameo from Earth-9. It was the DC Universe Titans. I've not watched the show. I know Michelle has, and she could say a lot about it. The one thing that neither Chris or I can come up with is Earth 9. We don't know what the 9 means in that Earth. It's the one Earth that we don't have a reference to the number 2. So if we figure that out before this crossover is done, we'll let you know. Chris, what's next? Yeah, my best guess was it was a reference to the price for DC Universe per month, but I just checked and it's $7.99 a month. So I don't know. I, I thought it was cool to see Alan Richardson on screen as a uh, hawk who was also, you know, Aquaman in Smallville, so that was kind of neat. Uh, next Earth we go to, Earth-X, where we met our uh, the Nazi-inspired heroes in the past. And here we have the Ray flying through Earth-X, one of our heroes, uh, Leo's lover. I miss Leo. Unfortunately, we did not get to see Leo. Maybe we'll get him later in the crossover, I don't know. But that was Earth-X, and of course, X means the Earth that was in the crossover a few years ago. Earth 66, that is Batman 66, like 1966, the Batman on TV. Chris basically said everything there is to say about it. You had Burt Ward, who played Robin, 
and he was walking the dog and he has one of his iconic lines. There's no Batman at the end because there's no Batman present, but holy crimson skies of death. I heard that and I was like, this is going to be a fun crossover. I, it really got me into what was going on. And unfortunately, things were happening so fast. Well, I'll talk about that in a second. Things were happening so fast. You didn't get a chance to really take it all in. And it took me a second or third watch to get to it. So what's next, Chris? Next, we head on over to Earth 88. That's Supergirl's world where the majority of this story is going to be taking place. You mean Earth 38? I thought I said 38. You said 88. Oh, oops. <laughs> I guess I was, I don't know why I said that. There's too many damn Earths. So Earth 38, Supergirl's world, where we're greeted to Will Wheaton sharing his doomsday sign. This was a cameo that Michelle's note. She says, I didn't see this coming. And I had no clue that Will Wheaton was showing up in either. I kind of looked and I was like, is that Will Wheaton for a moment? And it was, in fact, Will Wheaton. I wanted to see Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory at that point in time going, Will Wheaton, like he always says. I know you didn't watch it, but I did. So whenever I see Will Wheaton on screen, I go back to Sheldon Cooper. And yeah, Sheldon was not in this, but it was really cool to see Will here. And I don't know if in this universe, if he played Wesley Crusher or not. I don't think he was actually Will Wheaton, but it was Will Wheaton playing the role of whoever he was random protester or fear monger or whatnot the last earth we'll talk about in this part of the crossover is earth 16 and it was not in present day it wasn't in 2019 it was in 2046 we go back to the 2016 episode of arrow or actually legends of tomorrow which was star city 2046 and this was the episode that legends of tomorrow landed in and we saw the future of star city which we had been speculating on for a while i'm glad that they finally came out with this kind of fixed that in the chronology timeline and told us it was an alternative earth kind of glad that they did that because this gives them creative license to fix things in current time and we already know that they have problems in the current time because william and mia and I don't know what's going to happen in the future of Arrow there, but at least we know it's not the 2046 Star City. Right. It was one of the flaws you'd seen. Is remember, we, la- we learned in that episode that, at least in Legends and other ones, Oliver's supposed to live to be 80-something, and then this all comes around, and Oliver's going to die, and we go, wait, what? We were told before he's going to be 80. What changed things? So it was nice to go back to Earth-16 of tw- or Earth-2046, which we find out is Earth-16. I'm still kind of curious how the Wave Rider and crew crossed over to a parallel Earth. That would be interesting to find and figure out at some point in time. It would. However, Earth-38 was able to do it. Of course, it took Lena some calculations, but they were able to do it with all the alien ships to get them to Earth-1. So it is possible. But they still had to go through a portal to do it. Similar to what you get with the what was it, the extrapolator, whatever they call it, the tool they have to jump that Cisco built for them. We'll have to wait to fully discuss this after part three. Mm-hmm. So Michelle in the notes, what she did is she broke it up into thorns and roses. And one of the things that she put in, in let's go over the roses first. She put in that this fixed the Legends 2046 plot hole, which we just discussed. And there was a great old man, Ollie and Sarah moment. Now, this was important. This was important because in that 2046, Oliver hadn't seen Sarah. She died 
in the very first, basically episode one for us. Right. She did not live through the Queen's Gambit, similar to what we thought happened in episode one and find out later through the season that Sarah lives when we watched Arrow originally. And Oliver is broken to the point where it would have been very different for him to have Sarah come in his life. So in the last few episodes of Arrow, he said, you know, I could never have been the Green Arrow without going to Lee on you. I think this little scene here tells us that he wouldn't have been the Green Arrow without Sarah being able to help him out as things progressed as well. Or he would have never been able to become Oliver Queen again without people like that in his life. The Oliver we see in 2046 here is kind of a broken man who is just the hood, basically. Not able to split his life into two pieces and live them differently. Like the Oliver Queen that we know in our timeline. He can take off the hood. He can be a father. He can be a husband. This Oliver in 2046 is broken. He is the hood. He is all about the mission because that's all he knows. It's kind of a sad moment and it kind of makes it a bit more heartwarming when she pats him on the kisses him on the cheek and says, you're a good man, whatever earth you're on, which was also a meme fodder on the subreddit because everyone started posting pictures of Earth X Oliver and be like, forgot about me. And it was just a funny little moment. <laughs> I think the Earth X Oliver is dead now, though, isn't he? He died in the crossover, yes. Although time travel, so you can bring him back, whatever, which is actually one of the problems here. And I'm going to talk about it in a second. But Michelle wanted to bring out the Rose of Batwoman in this crossover. Her interactions with Ray that she had a couple of times, which actually Brandon Routh brings out in an interview later on that we'll talk about next episode also, Batwoman trusting Kara. That is pretty big, although I will we'll have to talk about later. But at least in this episode, she trusts Kara and just overall kicking butt. So very great stunt coordination done with the character of Batwoman. So the whole Kara and uh, Kate thing that they're building up towards here, their friendship and how they play off of each other. That's the new Oliver and Barry, basically. That's how I look at it. Well, okay. So since we talked about this last year, I have now become a little bit more familiar with World's Finest. And the World's Finest is Batman and Superman. So this is the CW version of World's Finest because we're never going to get Batman in here, at least not more than we have already. So it's going to be Kara and Kate being World's Finest. I'm fine with that. They're great. And yeah, now that we've lost Oliver because Arrow is ending, not because anything that happens in Crisis here, that... We are going to need that camaraderie and having those two fulfill that is going to be great. I completely get that. Now, Batwoman's interactions with Ray, Ray's like just geeking out, right? Like, oh, wow, I can fix that tech for you. Would you like an upgrade? I think Cisco could have done it. I think a lot of characters within the CW universe could have done it. But this is what they have going on in part one right now. So Ray's actually able to give her an upgrade later on when they're in the middle of the fight of their lives. And I think it also reestablishes a point that we tend to kind of forget sometimes because Ray plays the comedic relief or like the science bro with Nate, that Ray Palmer is a genius himself, creator of Palmer tech. He created the Adam suit. He's going with multiple different inventions to help the legends. And yeah, he can help soup up uh, Batwoman's suit. And it plays a part into what Ray gets pulled into having to do in future episodes of Crisis. That reminder, he's smart. He's capable of other things. It's important going forward. One other thing that Michelle wanted to say in terms of roses is that Stephen Amell's acting is on point. And the, especially the scene where Mia gets the suit from her dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was well done. I will give one caveat to that. And that is the death scene. 
not Stephen Amell's best work, but I don't think it was anyone's best work on that one. I think that whole thing is yeah we'll touch on that i think more in depth when we get to that specifically okay let's just go back and forth here i'm going to start my roses i'm going to say that the intro the age of heroes multiverse intro was phenomenal i watched that again on the second time through after watching it the first one and coming away with a certain takeaway from the entire episode i watched it the second time i really enjoyed that intro that intro that cinematic feel to it it really gave me the hope that this crossover was going to be something more than it has turned out to be. That's fair. Uh, I liked the introduction of Team Legends here, where you have uh, Ray and Sarah playing Team Trivia in a bar. And, you know, Team Trivia asking questions about history, something they should be good about until they get asked a question about Janis Joplin. Sarah's like, oh, I know this answer, writes it down, finds out she's wrong. And Ray asks, like, yeah, you remember when we went back there and I was supposed to do something and I didn't? kind of changed history and it was a fun moment and it also tied into the fact that the legends are kind of a dysfunctional family that do things so it sort of makes sense that sarah and ray would be hanging out outside of the ship outside of a work capacity because they're friends they're family one thing that i enjoyed was just the world building of this whole crossover altogether. so the marvel universe since 2008 have done a great job of pulling everything together into what we know as the marvel cinematic universe DC, and more specifically Warner Brothers, has not done a great job of trying to pull everything all together. Now, we could talk about the failures of the Marvel Cinematic Universe when it came to the small screen, and if you want more information on that, we'll talk about it over on Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is a podcast that I do about Marvel. But over here on the DC side, it has been non-existent. I mean, one could say that these six shows are the best continuity that DC has had in terms of on-screen presence, either on the big screen or the small screen ever, but it's never been brought together. You've never had that 78 Batman or that 66 Batman or 78 Superman, excuse me, or that 66 Batman or that 89 Batman. You've never had that all brought together underneath one roof. This did that. It was amazing to me when they were going through all those Earths that you finally understood it's all right there. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, one of the things I really loved this episode, and it's something I thought was missing in Crisis on Earth X. We kind of didn't get mentioned much in Earth Crisis on Earth X that Oliver and Sarah are friends. They've known each other for years. We get a lot of references and a lot of interaction between Oliver and Sarah this time where it establishes the fact they're friends. They've known each other for a long time. Sarah understands how he thinks and vice versa. It's nice. And it's especially nice as you assume it's going to be a farewell to the character because they keep saying, Oliver Queen is going to die. So you're like, well, at least he's getting to spend some more time with people he knows. And you get these fun interactions that are also kind of a callback to when Sarah was part of the show on Arrow and was part of Team Arrow for a while. I, I really enjoyed getting to see those two interact again and just establish the friendship that is there between them now. One thing that was pervasive throughout the entire crisis and very specifically in this episode was they broke the fourth wall and they broke the fourth wall by saying we're in a crisis in Brainy played by Jesse Rath, who I've interviewed over on Voices of Defiance, by the way. He did a great job of of just listing out all the things about how fantastical that this really was and how unbelievable and 
whatever. So I think they did a good job of taking it seriously. Also, Jean Jones basically came out and said, we're in crisis. So it wasn't the only time we've ever heard an actor this year say we've got a crisis coming because Barry and and Oliver have been saying that for quite some time. A lot. Yeah. But this was another actor that came in and said, we're in crisis. Although I'll caveat that with John Jones, we didn't really see a lot of his interaction with the monitor. And that kind of bugged me a little bit that he was taken aside by monitor. And then we said, just got him in a scene where he was in the DEO and he came out and said, it's a crisis. And Okay, so what did the monitor tell you? What was going on behind the scenes there? Right, and I think this is another one of those problems they have with just having to juggle far too many characters because John is a character that interests me and I was like, I wish I could see more of what's going on, but he's not part of the core team this time around that's defending the tower and things like that. So he kind of gets shortchanged in comparison and it seems a bit strange, especially when you get to parts two and three and that's all I will say in regards to to John. I personally also enjoyed getting to get that look of Lois and Clark and baby Jonathan on Argo. Uh, Clark finally gets kind of his chance to be a regular man. His child's there. Uh, Lois makes the joke, rather, that uh, no superpowers. Now he's afraid of a dirty diaper. And it was fun. It was different. You don't see a lot of cartoon or TV references to Superman with his family. They've kind of updated the comics and stuff to reference his son, Jonathan, things like that. But I enjoyed seeing a depowered, happy Lois Clark and Jonathan. That was enjoyable to me. Let me give you a little secret, Chris, since you don't have kids. All men afraid of dirty diapers. Yeah, and it's probably good he doesn't have his super senses. Could you imagine super smell there? Oh! Yeah. Ew. One thing that I did pick out from all this is the homage to the Superman movie when they are putting Jonathan in the ship to go away from Argo. It was word for word of what's in the film. It was amazing that they were able to pull that off. So I had that later. I liked the symmetry for Kal-El and baby Jonathan. He has the same send off that Kal-El does when Kal-El is evacuated from Krypton to save his life. You get the same treatment for Jonathan, same voiceover work, stuff like that. It was a powerful moment. And if you're a Superman fan, a lot of people are like, oh, this is awesome. And kind of potentially heartbreaking at the same time because you're like, oh, no, the exact same thing that happened to the son to the father is going to happen to the son. And we'll get more into that later. One thing staying on Superman that I really enjoyed that I don't know if it's comic based or not. I don't remember ever seeing it on screen is when Supergirl and Superman were comforting each other in the face of all the tremendous loss that's going around on them in the DEO, on the balcony, and you get that, what I'm just going to call an iconic shot. I have no idea if it's from like a comic panel or not, but you had them both embracing each other, kind of comforting each other, and just kind of stumped over the ledge, and all you see is the capes draped behind them, and them just comforting each other. It was a very powerful, super moment. Yes, uh, I enjoyed the fact that Ray Palmer continues to be a delight. Brandon Routh is amazing. I enjoyed all of the stuff about wanting to give Batwoman or upgrades, nerding out about the team up, things like that. I just like seeing Brandon Routh involved in all of this, which is kind of bittersweet since we know he's leaving Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, we've talked about that in previous episodes. And you're going, oh man, we're, we're nearing the end of his run. I've enjoyed and I've enjoyed having Ray around since friggin arrow when he was a regular on there he's been in this universe for quite a long time yeah and it was kind of sad that we didn't get to see another earth with palmer tech in it in this episode i was really hoping for palmer tech to come out but we didn't get it 
Right. We got Lena Luther though, doing science stuff with Alex. Yeah, we'll get to her. One of the things that I really enjoyed was the final battle moment. So they're in the tower that's protecting Earth, and it's just this mega battle. It would have been better had all the heroes been in there, but you had a lot of the heroes in there, right? And it just brought back to me the Avengers battle from Age of Ultron. Yes, I'm crossing the streams over to Marvel there. Or one of the Harry Potters, because you got all these wraiths running around and everything. You have this tremendous battle that's going on. They did their best to try to capture that on the small screen. It just wasn't as cinematic as you've seen on the big screen with those other movies, but it was pretty cool to see. Completely agree. That was a cool moment. I really had one last thing left in this section, and I just enjoyed all the quick cuts to the Earths early on, getting to see Earth 89, getting to see Earth X, getting to see Earth 9. These little cameos and those moments where as a fan of a variety of different comic books and content like this, you're like, I never expect to see these when I had this. And in the span of like five minutes, you cross over to multiple Earths, they connect to a bunch of other products or movies you might have loved. And it, it was just a fun moment. And the inner geek of me, which is expressed a lot in all these things, was just geeking out hardcore during all of it. The final point that I have in my roses is this episode was just stockful and really the crossover in general. So it's not specific to this episode, but it was stockful of female leads in this episode alone. You have Lila and Harbinger, although she's not really a lead. She comes in for a few scenes. You have Supergirl. You have Alex Danvers. You have Sarah Lance. You have Lena Luther. and you have Batwoman, Kate Kane, all playing lead roles. This is not just a men led superhero show. You get a lot of female leads and it was great that none of them were really marginalized. There were some storylines that we have issues with, but they were all great leads. And I'm so happy to see this on the CW network. It's great to see these heroes that are out there for all people to look at. Let's talk about some of the thorns. Let's flip over a little bit and we'll start with Michelle's. She didn't like not seeing Lila become Harbinger and any of her relationship with the monitor. So far, all we've gotten is bits and pieces of her talking with the monitor. We haven't seen that really develop together in the past with Arrow specifically. We have seen those villain relationships grow. And for lack of a better term, I'm just going to say villain here because it's been treated like a villain side story, not really treated like a main story. I guess the best Thing to say if you want to say it's a hero side is any of the Wells stories that have happened over on the Flash because those have been treated as, as B stories along the way but we didn't see any of that we just got a few communication scenes and there wasn't really a lot of character development there so I agree with Michelle you just don't see that coming out and I haven't read the crisis the original crisis in the comics so I don't know how big that interaction was in the comics Another thing that we didn't see was Nash or the Wells of this universe of Earth One. Now we didn't see Nash becoming Pariah. He just said he was Pariah. He came up, said, "That's what I am." Okay, what, yeah. what, what does this mean? Who are you, and what are your powers and everything? And you would think that you would want to give some significance to that, considering they showed that in the post-credits scene of like every show prior to Crisis was Wells finding the doorway and something happening to him. So I, I wish there had been some significance to it. Although I guess now that I think about it, we probably do get that in either part two or three. But from a part one perspective. 
don't get a lot of it. Priya's not necessarily a main character so far in these three parts. Michelle wanted the tower to become part of the plot like it was in the comics. Again, I haven't read the comics, so I don't know that. But I can see that the tower was, it just appeared out of nowhere. And Barry was doing recon around it. And then they had a battle in there. And that's it. And then Earth-38 was destroyed. She wishes, this is Michelle, wishes that the crossover was treated like a five-hour movie. I think in our pre-show talk, Chris, we are both in violent agreement with this. Where this has been the motive for the crossovers so far. Is that they treat each episode as an individual episode of that show. You have a specific director for that series in that episode and you have the main cast for that series in this case supergirl in the episode but you're kind of pushing away everything else now i think in this particular case it didn't hold up as well as others in the past and i had an issue with that i think part of it is you're just gonna have production issues trying to cross over so much stuff so i get from a production standpoint why you can't really be like we have one overall director that's gonna be doing all five episodes because they don't have time for one person to oversee all of those so effectively they've split it up five ways and there's probably someone who claims the credit for just overall picture over top i'm assuming it's mark guggenheim who's working as like their term the showrunner for crisis i'm not sure I think in order for them to make it a five-hour movie, which is what we're all wanting, it would have required more time that they just don't have in a TV world. True. If it was a streaming service, I think they would have had the time. Yes, because then they can do an entire season and then just start streaming it. Here, they were still beholden to the fact that while they're coming up on the winter break, there's still other stuff they had to film. Because we know for a fact, like, Arrow's wrapped all its filming at this point in time. So they couldn't really take, say, three weeks to go do Crisis because there was still two episodes of Arrow to film and the schedule didn't allow for that. So I think that's what we're running into here is it's just television scheduling makes it really hard to put this all in one person's hands and be like, okay, we're going to have a unified view of crisis across all five elements here. From previous reporting, we know it takes about eight days to put together an episode and that's from filming the um, CGI and everything else for any show out there. Even if the CW added that schedule a little bit and said 10 or 12 days you have six shows and i I, in the past we're just saying five because it's a five-hour crossover i will now say that black lightning was a part of this you have six shows simultaneously being filmed and created at the same time with a lot of the same actors in it so you have the same actors that have to appear in all of these episodes That's a little bit of a nightmare for scheduling, and I think it is one of the main reasons. So you don't have, like in a film, you might have an A-set director, a B-set director, or two A-set directors, and then a stunt coordinator director, so maybe three scenes being shot at the same time. You had to have six shows being filmed at the same time. I understand why it didn't come together like we wanted it to, but still, I wish it came together more like a five-part miniseries or a movie right from a show perspective the way the staffs were broken up you had individual shows but the way it is set up how they're billing it like when you go and start the episode on your tv it doesn't say supergirl crisis on infinite earth on the title screen it just says crisis now your dvr of course reflects that because that's how they fit things in so from one point of view it's all 
one big overarching event, but when you start looking at the staffs involved to make this happen, it is not the same staff that is working each part of this, just because of the nature of television. Michelle wanted to point out specifically that she was not upset that Oliver died in part one, which was a Supergirl episode, not an Arrow episode. And later, Mark Guggenheim came on the Kevin Smith hosted After Crisis episode, and he said, we wanted to surprise people that Oliver would die. Everybody knew Oliver was going to die in Crisis, but we wanted to surprise them in part one instead of part five when Arrow airs or something like that. I don't know if I'm okay with this. This is the same issue that we had with the weddings being on Supergirl versus being in the Flash or Arrow. That was an issue. I think this is not as big of an issue because I think a wedding is bigger than a death sort of thing, but I still have an issue with it. This should have been an Arrow. I don't care that Oliver died in what is technically a Supergirl episode because like I just said, while it is technically a Supergirl show, it's Crisis which is an event across all things. So yes, they're in the Supergirl time slot, and yes, it's the Supergirl team, but it's not actually Supergirl Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's Crisis Part 1, so I'm kind of okay with that. I'm not exactly okay with the vigorous patting oneself on the back that we got in uh, the Crisis Aftermath show, and it kind of turned my opinion further on the death, which was, okay, yeah, you made him die here, I wasn't expecting it, but don't pat yourself on the back so much, be like, ha ha ha, we screwed with you, because it's really what annoyed me with Star Trek, uh, the second one where they're like, Benedict Cumberbatch isn't con. And everyone's like, he's con. We know he's con. And then in the end, like, he's con. You had no idea. Yeah, we did. You didn't really surprise us that much. It taught J.J. Abrams a lesson not to do that again, though. Yeah. I don't know. Had I not watched Crisis Aftermath, which, to be fair, I turned off about 25 minutes into it because I just was not having it. It wasn't clicking for me for some reason. I, maybe I wouldn't have been bothered so much by the death. It just, it felt like they tried too hard to shock us, not necessarily to do something narratively that was necessary at that point in time. It was more of, oh, we're going to shock you because that's what we want to do versus setting the stakes being that Oliver Queen dies. This is why it's so important. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think to add another aspect to the Oliver death, I think we're both in agreement here where the actual portrayal of it and the production of what happened and who Oliver was surrounded by while he died, it wasn't suited for the production team that took it over. They didn't understand the character as well as like an arrow team would. They didn't have the personnel around. It's kind of like Quentin Lance's death where you had Sarah who's never been able to say goodbye to Quentin because she just came in, didn't say a word and then turned around and left. And I, think that this is the sort of the same thing all you had was Mia you didn't have William you didn't have Felicity you didn't have any of the arrow team present you just had Mia so I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this I think overall Oliver's final stand whatnot I think could have benefited from two things one a director or a stunt coordinator that is more familiar with how arrow works and how these kind of battles and stuff work I would have loved to have James Banford involved in the battle here. I don't believe he was from reading the show credits, anything like that. And I didn't put this in my notes on the Google Doc, but I had it written down on a piece of paper. I think arguably one of the things that frustrates me the most is we don't actually see Oliver's last stand. Yep. We just see him run up to confront the Dementors, because that's what we call these guys. And then it cuts to the monitor pulls a dead dying Oliver into the arrow bunker, or arrow cave rather, to say goodbye to everyone. 
I wish I could have seen Oliver's last stand because that should be an awesome epic moment as a comic book fan. That's something I want to see on screen. I sort of understand why they didn't because I think they were running into a problem of it's something we would build up so much in our heads. It would never live up to our expectations, which I think is possibly part of what might be happening with Crisis for some people that are not liking it at all. I'm not one of those, but there are folks online that are very much upset with how Crisis is going, and I think it's a consequence of building it up too much in one's head. I have the same problem when it came to, say, the Star Wars movies and things like that, is that I might have built it up too much in my head. It doesn't meet my expectations, and I have to kind of figure out why. The Oliver death Without going into parts two and three stuff, I sort of understand where they're going once we get into part two and three. I still just don't like the execution of it in this part because I think it could have been done better. If you want to kill him now, that's fine, but pull it off better on screen and don't afterwards come on online and be like, Haha, we did this to subvert viewer expectations. Look how bad we screwed with you. It's the wrong play, I think. I watched it on the second time a few times, so I... Second time through, I watched it, and then I backed it up, and I watched it again. I caught a few things. I didn't honestly catch the first time around, probably because things were just happening too fast. He is on the rooftop, and he is shooting arrows at the Dementors, and he has a full quiver. A full quiver. And he is shooting arrows, shooting arrows, and then he gets knocked down by one Dementor. He still has a full quiver, and then he gets knocked down by a second Dementor, and his quiver is completely empty, and there is no emptying of the quiver anywhere. There is no Dementor running away with a fistful of arrows or anything. Where the heck did those arrows go? And then, this is the other thing that kind of bugs me because they just didn't understand the character. There was no knives. There was no fletchettes. There was no little smoke bombs that the Green Arrow has in his utility belt, for the lack of a better term. He has more to fight with than just his fists. And to just get rid of his arrows, which are CGI'd anyway, I understand that. Yeah. But just to get rid of them without showing us where they went when he had a full quiver, again, full quiver, and then not to have any other weapons on him. And then he's just going after the Dementors. I think it happened too fast. It happened not in a way that we want to see Arrow go out. It should have been a little bit more drawn out. And then the next thing we just see him lying on a bed in you know, the, the superhero cave for that second and he is dying and it's like, what, what happened? And you're right. It would not have lived up to my expectations. I don't think, but they've done it better before. Yeah. So going back to all the weapons and stuff he's using, these enemies are not the best way to showcase Oliver Queen's skill sets because predominantly the only thing that's really taking them out. It's not physical damage. It's not punching or kicking or martial arts or anything like that. It's, impact from weapons be it ray's energy blood ray palmer's energy blast or supergirl's heat vision lightning bolts from the flash things like that they're not enemies that really lend themselves to oliver's other skills so maybe that's why they kind of just had him stick to the bow for everything because you're not really going to be able to display awesome martial arts skills to take these guys out it doesn't seem like because he's a regular human maybe i, I might be grasping at straws here but I'm starting to think that maybe there was more to his last stand that we didn't see, and that's why we have that abrupt cut to him with no arrows in his quiver after it's full. I don't think what we see on his back is CGI arrows, whereas what he shoots is CGI arrows. So perhaps there was a cut that was done, or there was more to that fight where he runs out of arrows, and they just cut it for time purposes and 
Maybe we're going to get an extended cut of Crisis released digitally or something like that at a later time, where some of that's filled in. But as someone whose impetus for watching this was originally loving the Arrow show and then kind of dabbling in the rest of the universe, I just would have liked to have seen more for Oliver Queen's final battle. It just seems kind of not going out with a bang, but a whimper almost for Oliver Queen because he's on his own. He's going to save lives. And that's great. He saves billions of lives. That's an important thing to make a distinction of. But we don't see it. And, and that's part of what this show has never really shied away from is you almost always get to witness Oliver dealing the ass whooping and stuff like that. I mean, or him even losing. Remember, they showed him getting stabbed through the gut by Ra's al Ghul before he gets kicked off a mountain. They've never really shied away from showing us what happens to Oliver. And I know the fact that we didn't see how Oliver's final stand went had fueled a lot of conspiracy theories on the Reddit and other things. There were a lot of folks that were like, well, maybe what's happening here is the monitor plucked him out off the rooftop and was kind of saving him in reserve somewhere. And it's actually another battle that gives Oliver these grievous injuries that we're going to see later. And that's when the, when the monitor brings him to the arrow cave to say farewell. I don't think that was the case. And I wager parts two and three, wink, wink, will tell us more of what might be going on in regards to that. It's just, I don't know. I think I gra- I struggle with the fact that it's just not really how I envisioned Oliver going out. And because I didn't see how he went out. I just heard he was in a fight and he saved a lot of lives, which is an important thing. But like I said, they've never shied away from showing it. And this is one of the times they shied away from showing Oliver fighting. Every second that Oliver was able to buy, you can just put a number on it. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, somewhere along there. People were able to survive from Earth 32 over to Earth 1. I think it is very much stated that he made the ultimate sacrifice at that point in time for the saving of a lot of people. So I would say about half the people on Earth 38 got off and went to Earth 1. Earth 1's going to have some uh, Thanos problems here. Uh, Remember all about Avengers Endgame and Infinity War. It's all about there's not enough resources to support all the people in the universe. But we just brought another, what, 3.7 billion people to our Earth that are aliens on a planet that has only ever really experienced uh the uh oh what were the aliens from uh from the crossover oh uh, the, the uh dominators they've only ever really experienced bad things with aliens now you have alien ships oh, coming out of the sky above you with people you've never seen and aliens you've never seen there's probably a lot of panic on earth one right now we need mr thanos to come through but <laughs> that's a Great that you brought that up because Michelle's next point is just because it's called Supergirl, the episode, the series that part one was in, doesn't mean all the stupid subplots from the show have to be in the crossover. What I specifically want to talk about to start off with is everything that went on with aliens last year in Supergirl was one of the worst storylines I could have imagined for me watching a superhero show. And I'm glad that they actually referenced that. But I just I didn't need to be reminded of that. But I guess they had to because who would have thunk that humans and aliens would be working together to save the planet less than half a year later after all that crap went down. Right. And they kind of mentioned that to Jean. He's like, well, I think people are will inherently do the right thing. Like I said, I haven't watched Supergirl, but I know what happened where aliens were vilified for everything. That's an overly optimistic viewpoint that I guess worked out because plot in this case. The other issue that I had specifically was Lena Luthor. I've really not 
cared about the plot with Lena Luther at all this year. And all I kept thinking of is every second that you are arguing with Alex Danvers means that people are going to die because you are not getting them off the planet. You're just bickering back and forth. And I just didn't need to see that. Uh, of course, in the context of the show, you have to get Lena from where they ended the last episode to help Alex. And you have to have the two actually working together that were trying to kill each other in the previous episode. But still, I just didn't need to see any of that. A hundred percent agree. It was I'm someone who hasn't watched Supergirl the last two seasons. I knew there was a falling out between them. I've known the basics of it. But the world is ending. I don't give a crap about you betrayed my trust. You made me feel like a fool. Are you going to help us save everyone or are you not? Because I have other things to do and don't keep referencing this grudge. Part of that I think is done for folks like myself who haven't been watching Supergirl to understand there's a fallout. Here's the basics of that fallout. So I think they're making that awkwardness for the purpose of plot to try and illustrate that point. It just felt grating and awkward and it made the character feel What's the, what's the term I'm looking for here? You didn't like her. You liked her even less, even if you were someone who may have liked her, because you're like, come on, you're either going to help them or you're not. Stop talking about this grudge. I don't, I don't get it. I don't think it's the actor's fault, by the way. No, the actor is doing what the script and the story is calling for there, which is Lena to have that petty streak, but then try and be like, I'm not going to be petty about things, even though I'm being petty about things. Can you imagine her on the Peloton bike? Oh, no. Yeah, slightly. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you should go check out Ryan Reynolds' Twitter feed and see a great Peloton bike commercial that is in terms of aviation gin. Anyway, let's move on to another thorn that we both had, and I want you to discuss it first. It has to do with the pacing. So this is part one of a five-part crossover, and I talked about it a little bit on the uh, on the Discord server that we have over at gunnageek.com slash Discord. There's a Starlink Tribune channel. We have been having tons of spoiler-filled conversations in regards to Crisis, and if you want to come join us over there, feel free. Just make use of spoiler tags so people who are trying to avoid them don't get spoiled. And SP had mentioned it, Stephen Jondra had mentioned a few other people in there, that the pacing just felt weird. It felt like we would rush to do something, then it would inevitably slow down, and you would slow down for a little bit, and then we'd try and cram too much stuff into one section. And I don't think it's, it's a criticism, yes, but I think it's what's going to happen when you're trying to set the stage for the five-part crossovers. I think they were trying to set a lot of pieces in Crisis Part 1, and I think trying to set so many things up on the board and set up everything that's going to be going on kind of makes the pacing suffer a little bit and kind of splits members of the cast up that you might have wanted to have seen together. It just felt a little awkward and forced at times. I get why it happened, and from my standpoint, I'm trying to look at this as part one of a five-act movie. And there's a lot of setup required in that. And that's what we got here. And it, it just felt weird. But I understand sort of why they did it. I came away from this episode with a really bitter taste in my mouth. And it wasn't because Oliver died. Because we knew this was going to happen during the crossover. Oliver and Barry, it's been set up for years. I had a problem just with too much, too quick. And it kept on going. And you're absolutely right. There was too much that was in this episode. I have a potential solution that they could have gone with, but in a second. But one thing I want to say is on the second viewing, it got just a little bit better, but it still could have used 
a little bit better plot progression along the way. And I just, I didn't get it. I wanted something that was more cinematic quality. I wanted something that was more streaming quality. This wasn't it. And the one thing that I could see just taking it out and being able to give back some more time to develop some things was Jonathan's single escape to Earth-16. I don't think it was necessary. You know, maybe later we'll find out it's necessary that we threw that in there. But they were saved on Argo by Harbinger bringing them, not Allura, but Superman and Lois, Clark and Lois. They were able to be saved. Jonathan could have been saved the same way. You didn't necessarily need to send him out. And and I get the fact that they didn't know that they were going to be saved. But for the purposes of the plot, if you're trying to get more time then you could have gotten more time by not having to go to Earth-16. I think they had to do it to try and fix the plot hole we talked about with Legends of Earth 2046 and what was going on there. And I think it might partly be fan service because a lot of fans liked the Green Arrow from that time frame and wanted to see it revisited. So I'm okay with it because of what it gave us. And I think it may have some additional significance in the future. There's been some interesting theories floated around in the Discord server I can't do them quite the justice they deserve, but poke around there with potentially having gone through a portal to another Earth, imparting additional powers or abilities that could be used in the crisis. I'm okay with it. And if you look at it from a storytelling perspective, it was a fun little diversion that allowed you to get another look at Oliver Queen and to further cement the importance that Sarah Lance has in Oliver Queen's life and and vice versa. I'm going to move on to another thorn is Batwoman's timeline because last year she was already established as Batwoman when Oliver and Kara and Barry came to see her in Gotham. And since then you got the origin of Batwoman and then you got her into her fight with the Alice gang. And that was actually, that actually happened here in she wanted to continue that. She was solely focused. She's, she wants to know where Alice is hanging out. And she gets taken away right when she's about to find out. And she doesn't like it one bit. And that's when Kara has to calm her down a little bit. Uh, you know, she should just know better. It's December. It's crossover time. She just should expect to have to leave her show to go to another show in the future. But I think they need to do somewhat of a good job of explaining what the heck happened last year and why, what's the Batwoman time frame? Like, is everything that we're seeing this fall in Batwoman that, that really happened a year or two years ago and that we're seeing the crossovers more real time? It, this has to be explained. So I have not started watching Batgirl yet. Batwoman. My apologies. However, when they were announcing this, This summer, one of the things they brought up is that the timeline is going to be different from when we were introduced to Kate Kane in Elseworlds. She's firmly established, and this is origin. So my assumption is, and I think we'd have to go back and look at interviews, is that everything we're seeing in the show so far is prior to the Elseworlds crossover up until this episode now where she is. So I don't know what's going to happen post-crisis timeline-wise. I agree. They probably need to iron that out. Maybe it's something that's covered in the tie-in comic book they're doing, or maybe it's just something that the writer's room or one of the showrunners should be asked. We're really confused on timeline here because they're doing the rounds for all sorts of interviews. Can you explain to us where Elseworlds fits compared to the Batwoman show, compared to Crisis timeline-wise, just so we can try and get a picture of how everything fits together because it is confusing. 
in the after crisis show they did a good job of explaining all the multiple earths they should probably do a timeline explanation at some point too and maybe they did in the second one i haven't seen it yet yeah i haven't either uh, it is something that they did talk about going into this season though is that the kate we saw in elseworlds is in the future compared to the kate that we would see in batwoman now i don't know if batwoman's caught up to elseworlds crossover yet or not that's all fair uh, another issue that i had is where the heck did mia's arrow suit come from you're on earth 32 for crying out loud where did that suit come oliver doesn't know any suit makers on earth 32 i'm sure brainy could whip something up it won't be as good as a cisco suit but it's something okay maybe that's he went to brainy for that i can buy that you have brainy you have cisco you have ray uh, you don't have the ship right now though you don't have the wave rider so i guess you could also say devil's advocate is that there are all sorts of supplies and stuff that argus had brought on lian yu is maybe this is something oliver had sort of had in the works prior to when they went to lian yu for the previous episodes of arrow that eventually mia was going to have to step up and be in that suit and he'd had the suit made and it's been sitting in a box somewhere that somehow came from earth one to earth 38 when they crossed everyone over I don't know, because Lila's the one that brought them, so presumably Lila would... No, I'm grasping at straws. I have no idea where the suit came from. It's something that would be nice to get some clarification on, but there's not enough time to figure it out with everything else that's going on. In the grand scheme of things, I get that's minor, but it still bugs me. I completely understand. Another thing that bugged me was talking about Ray Palmer when they're in the fight in the tower and he's sitting next to Kate Kane and she wants the upgrade. He's not being protected at all. You could clearly see the top part of his body is above the obstacle that he is supposed to be crouching down underneath. He could have been picked off quite easily. He was very vulnerable and eventually Kate Kane actually has to come and save him, but he had too, way too much time standing like that. He should have crouched down. He should know better. He's an experienced fighter. He's got a suit of armor. It should protect him. No, I, I agree with you. It's probably something that should have been thought of. And maybe this is a consequence of the team that was doing that. They're not used to someone with those kind of powers or someone who's not invulnerable fighting. So they don't really have to think about that as much. We've talked a lot about everything. Is there anything specific that you want to go over that we haven't touched upon? Like maybe a specific fight or a specific actual communication between actors that we haven't touched on yet? I think we need to talk about the fact that the monitor at the end is surprised that this is how Oliver dies, saying this is not the ending I saw for Oliver, kind of indicating that his power is waning and that all of the plotting and pulling of strings behind the scenes that he's been doing might have been all for naught because one of the big things of Oliver Queen is going to die in this did not happen the way he saw. And continuing on with that, that the monitor's pulling of strings, it worked in making Oliver do what he wanted, but it also might have helped tip the scales to Oliver not wanting to listen to him to leaving that rooftop because he finds out that Barry's still supposed to die in crisis. And Oliver's like, I traded my life for Barry and Kara what is going on here? And you find out, well, it was just for that event, not for crisis necessarily. So you get an interesting moment there where Kara and Barry realize what Oliver's done for them. And then Oliver feeling betrayed yet again by the monitor because he thought he made a deal to save Kara and Barry. And it was not the case. And maybe that partially contributes to why Oliver on that rooftop is like, no, there's still lives to save. I'm not going to listen to you because he's been played multiple times. 
you really get a sense of that original trio between Green Arrow, which is this universe's Batman, for the lack of a better term, and Flash and Kara, which is, even though we have a Superman, it's this universe's Superman. The only one that's missing is a Wonder Woman. We really don't have a Wonder Woman. But you have that trio, and that trio is the core, and, and Barry really wants to keep it together. So he's willing to make that sacrifice and to learn that his deal did not extend to this year, I think was a little bit of a gut punch, not only to him, but the fans that really thought that it was going to save Barry more on that later. I mean, we'll talk about that in the next couple of episodes. Uh, I'm not going to speculate on the future because we are going to talk about the next two episodes in our next two episodes. We're taking this one episode of the crossover at a time because there's so much that happened, especially in this episode that I don't want to if we did the three hours of the crossover, we'd have a four hour show and I still want to do that, but it was amazing start. Like I said, with the building of the multi universe, I had the pacing issue, which really threw me for a loop. And I only got a chance to see it once before the second episode aired. So the first episode was not my favorite and talking about it. And after watching it a second time is still not my favorite. There are, Parts of this that are really brilliant and then other parts I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just another CW show and it's getting a rating of under two and I I totally see why and okay, but this is the only place that we're going to see all this for DC Comics. So there's that. How would you rate this episode? I mean, you pick whatever scale or what, however you want to try to rate it. How do you think of this episode for you? I, I would put this for me in the, I didn't like it as much as I built it up in my mind. Right. So I think that's part of the problem that I have in a lot of things. And I referenced earlier in the show is that I build a lot of these things up that I'm really excited for up in my head a little too much. So it's sometimes tough to hit that mark. And I think part of, my discomfort with elements of this stems from my building it up so much. And then I did also mention part of my dislike is the uh, patting myself, patting ourselves on the back because we screwed with you that we killed Oliver in episode one and ha ha ha, you weren't expecting it. And then that's what you're mostly talking about versus the fact that a beloved character that a show is built around is dead. So if I had to rate it, eh, give it a C. And there was no after crisis after the second episode because they had the Black Lightning episode. So there was only two after crisis episodes after the first and third parts. And I don't know if they're going to have an after crisis after either the fourth or fifth part. I would assume we might see something. What I've learned here is something I should have remembered from The Walking Dead, that watching these recap TV shows about what you just watched generally annoys me and I don't get a ton out of it when it's all said and done. I was really annoyed by Kevin Smith and I realized the dude's got a lot of knowledge. He's a director of his own right and he has experience in the film and the TV industry, but I just get a little annoyed by his wild hand gestures that keep on going and going and going and constant positive energy over and over and over and over again. It just gets to be a little bit much when you're watching an hour-long show. It's something I've said about Kevin Smith before, and when I was younger, I was a huge fan of a lot of his stuff. I still watch some of his stuff, things like that, but the Kevin Smith we have nowadays has never found something he didn't like. It doesn't seem like. He's overwhelmingly positive, which is awesome, but it's very tough when you're like, but I have legitimate concerns or criticism about something here. I don't understand how everything that's going on, you're just like, this is great, this is great, because There's parts of me going, well, this is cool, but I don't understand. Why would you do this? So 
that that's a tough thing for me to overcome. It's kind of why I stopped listening to his Fat Man on Batman podcast because I would listen to it and there'd be something I wouldn't like, and he would just kind of gloss over me. Oh, this, this is all great and accentuate all the positives and minimize the negatives. Or I don't know. It, it's tough to take someone seriously who won't see both sides of an issue. And that's not to say I don't take him seriously. I'm, I'm struggling with my words here because I really do respect a lot of what Kevin Smith does in his career. It's just, it's tough for me now when someone loves 99.9% of everything they see to be like, well, this is captivating TV for me. And I've never had an individual conversation with him. I've never shared a beer with him or a meal or something like that. I get a sense that he's very the same, but off camera, he's got to be a little bit different. So it'd be interesting just to sit down and have a rational conversation with him and see where he stands on a lot of the issues. Honestly, I wish I could be as endlessly positive about some of these things as he is, because it would be very refreshing on some things because like Star Wars Last Jedi, for instance, I've had my reservations on not as much as other people, but like Kevin Smith seems to have loved the thing and all he can see is the positives and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, sometimes I wish I could be in that point where the negatives just wash over me and all I can see is the positive on something. It's probably refreshing and mentally healthy standpoint to live in. <laughs> can you believe we're getting to the, the age where we're like, so for the listeners that don't understand, we're both huge Star Trek fans. And so when the next generation came out, and I think I've used this as an example on the show before, when the next generation came out, you had a bunch of the original series people that would have been our age back in 87, 86, 87 saying, oh, you can't do that to the original show. You need to bring the original people back and everything. Is this kind of, are we just too old? Do you think? I don't know that it's, Maybe in part, but I think maybe it's the way in which television and cinema and whatnot has changed and it's become such more of a collaborative community thing to talk about things that happen and fantasy cast, fantasy do things in relations to it is that there's just so many options and such a great way to share ideas of what other people would have done differently or what you do or don't like that it's a lot easier to then get fixated sometimes on the aspects that you don't like or that the crowd is saying they don't like and talk about world building this can be done in a tv show that airs on a cable station the expanse is a great example where it's not a comic book universe as we know it's not marvel or dc but it's a world that was built on its own inside books kind of like game of thrones and game of thrones is another one although it's a streaming service it's not a well i'll i'll say hbo is a premium tv service and you are able to do things there that you just can't do on a station that is also broadcast like cw and they also stream i mean i think what saves cw is the fact that they're streaming for free and okay i'll take that and without that we wouldn't get have what we have today so okay but also season one and two of arrow were very different from the cw universe we have today i completely agree and for those of you guys that are watching live or listening at a later date, please don't take this as us being negative and poo-pooing on everything here. We have legitimate concerns of our own about things that have been going on, but I, overwhelmingly, I'm positive on what's going on. I've enjoyed what I've seen. I have my concerns and quibbles and things that I'd like to see rechanged or redone. This has been a good experience so far. I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I enjoy having the conversation of, here's what I don't like, here's what I'd like to change, and things like that. And I think that's healthy. As long as you go about doing it in a constructive way, similar to what we're doing, 
we're having a respectful conversation back and forth. We may not always agree with what we're saying, but we respect each other's viewpoint. We're not coming out there and be like, this person says that, and they're obviously an idiot because they think that. So this is good, constructive criticism in conversation, things like this. There's nothing wrong with that. So, for instance, we mentioned earlier on that Jesse Warren directed the episode. We also mentioned that we thought Bam Bam, James Bamford, would have been a better director for this particular episode. There might have been reasons why Bam Bam wasn't available since he directed three of the last four Arrow episodes. But I think Bam Bam would have been able to portray the fights a little bit differently than Jesse Warren did. Now, granted, this is Supergirl, so the fights in Supergirl are different than Arrow, but since you're bringing the universe together, especially with an Arrow death, having Bam Bam either as a stunt coordinator or a director might have been useful. Yeah, and this I agree with you, is that when it comes to the fights, especially what's supposed to be Oliver Queen's final stand, this is where he dies to save billions of lives. I would have liked to have seen a fight scene or choreography that is more tailored to the skill sets that Oliver Queen has when it's all said and done. But we say this not saying that Jesse Warren did a bad job. We're just saying that Bam Bam would have been a better fit for this. Yeah, please don't take it as we're like, oh, they hated the director of this episode of Supergirl and hate everything. No, no. I enjoyed what he did, but I thought that the fight, especially the final fight, would have benefited from James Banford's touch, just because when it comes to fight scenes in Arrow or that involve the Green Arrow, I automatically now default to, I want James Banford to do that because he's put together some of the best fight scenes we've seen on television, on broadcast television, because what you can do on pay TV or streaming, you can't do on broadcast TV because of standards and practices and budgets. And James Banford has developed some incredible fight scenes having to get around standards and practices and budgets. He has, including that tremendous tri-level fight scene that they had in way back in the first see it was it the first season or second season? I think it was the second season. And let's be honest, had Oliver Queen not died here, had this not been the final stand for the Green Arrow, maybe this wouldn't be something that stuck out in my head as much, being like, man, I would have loved to see James Banford in charge of this final fight. Because it just would have been another fight and we'd expect another one to be coming down the pipe. For those long-term listeners of Starling Tribune, we have had in the history a couple of things. We had a bat checklist, and we have had an Easter egg roll. We've gone through a lot of the Easter eggs. I just want to throw this out to our audience. If there was an Easter egg that we did not cover in our discussion, we didn't have a specific Easter egg section. We talked about it throughout the podcast. If you have an Easter egg that we have missed, let us know. We'll talk about it in a future episode because we have four more episodes of the crossover to talk about next week. Chris, what are we talking about next week? It should surprise no one. It's crisis on infinite earths part two. This is technically Batwoman Season 1, Episode 9, but for all intents and purposes, it's Part 2 of the crossover, airing originally on Monday, December 9th, 2019. The summary they provide, the group uses Ray's invention to track new recruits to help save the universe. The Monitor sends Iris, Clark, and Lois in search of a mysterious Kryptonian, while Kate and Kara head out to find Bruce Wayne. In addition, Mia challenges Sarah, Rory discovers a hidden talent, and Lex Luthor returns. Director is Laura Beasley, the writers are Don Whitehead, and Holly Henderson. And that is it for the podcast this week. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank everybody that's watched us live and everybody that's downloading this podcast or watching the YouTube video later. Thank you very much. You can get our podcast wherever they are, including on Spreaker. And if you have an Amazon device, 
you can enable our podcast as a skill and have all sorts of plays. So if you get an Amazon device for Christmas, you can download our skill and have fun playing with that. And we also, as Chris alluded to before, have a Discord server. We've been talking about all these episodes using spoiler tags in our Starling Tribune channel on our gunnageek.com slash Discord, Discord server, which you can find at gunnageek.com slash Discord. And if you don't want to be spoiled on what we haven't talked about yet, there are tons of spoiler tags out there, which basically means the text is blacked out unless you click on it to see so it's up to you if you want to see the spoilers or not remember you can catch us live as we record at www.geeks.live at 7 30 p.m eastern and 4 30 p.m pacific on thursdays like sp had mentioned we do have that discord server if you have any comments on what we've talked about so far or you want to express a different viewpoint that is the best way to do it go over join the discord Come be part of the community there as we dissect what is going on in crisis. We love hearing from you guys. We're the Starling Tribune on Facebook, Instagram, and at Starling Tribune on Twitter. You can hit us up on the Discord. You can also leave a voicemail with your feedback. Give us a call at 612-888-CAVE. That is 612-888-2283. Well, SP, this was a great episode. It's a bummer Michelle couldn't join us. We hope she's feeling better for next week. That is going to wrap up this week, though. Any last words before we sign off at Stargate Pioneer? Hashtag Age of Heroes. I like it. And I am at the Chris Farrell signing off with hashtag Super Smell Hoss. That's right. I had to do it. I had to do it. Oracle, I think we're done here. This was the Starling Tribune. You can leave us feedback at gunnageek.com or check out our archive at starlingtribune.com. Visit gunnageek.com for more podcasts. Music by Kevin McLeod can be found at incompetech.com. This podcast is not produced or maintained by the CW, Warner Brothers Television, CTV, or DC Comics. All characters, stories, and situations are the property of Time Warner. No infringement is intended. We will see you for the next episode of CW's Arrow.